Good evening, church. Happy Ash Wednesday. I've never heard a great happy Ash Wednesday. That's like happy Good Friday. I mean, somehow, I'm not sure. We'll talk about that later. All right. Continuing on knowing God. It's a good topic to be on for a while. As a matter of fact, this is our lifetime, lifelong quest. It's what we do. Tonight, I want to continue on the understanding of knowing God by his authority. And I want to speak a message tonight entitled Beyond Clean, Beyond Clean. And last week we began to look at the various aspects of the authority of God. Jesus said very clearly, Matthew 28, all authority. If you've ever done any deep word, any deep study in the original Greek, the word all there means all. It's not a complex word to unpack, all right? It means everything. He is in charge of it. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And one of the great lies that we hear of the devil is, one, he's in charge, or number two, you're in charge. You know, you think you're in charge until you get married. You think you're in charge. I'm moving on, Pastor Sean. I'm moving on quick. You think you're in charge until you begin to have children. Come on. And, you know, it's amazing that when you're, somebody wrote this, somebody, somebody said this to your 14-year-old or your 16-year-old, please leave home now and make a lot of money while you still know everything. But how many of you know you get a little bit, you know, you, 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 you kind of move on in life and you realize, wow, I'm really not in charge much of anything here. And the enemy wants to tell us one or two lies. Number one, he's got it. Or number two, you've got it. And both of those, of course, have to be completely undone. And we looked last week a little bit at how authority unpacks some principles of authority. And we looked at five things. One, that those with authority have access and in turn grant access to others. Again, the janitor when you were in grammar school, the guy with all the keys, he was the big guy. He was the man. Forget the person in the principal's office. It was the dude with the keys. He was the impressive one. And yet God has given keys to you and I. And the real question is whether or not we are in turn granting that access to other people as well. Second, those with authority make rules and enforce those rules. We might not like that much because most of us at a very, very base level don't like authority much. We don't like being told what to do. Three, those with real authority don't have to prove it. They don't have to prove it to themselves or to anyone else. Chuck Norris. Chuck's Chuck's in charge. And there's no question. Chuck walks in the room. Chuck's in charge. He's got nothing to prove simply because he's Chuck Norris. All right, no one's heard all those jokes, so we'll move on. But Jesus never had to have any kind of a throwdown moment just to prove he was who he said he was. Jesus knew who he was. The Father had affirmed him at his baptism. Those who were there heard it. Jesus didn't have any crises that way. Four, real authority is not afraid to share it. Real authority is not afraid that if they begin to give away that which they have. Jesus understood this. He began to give away authority to his disciples while he was still there. He gave them authority to cast out devils, heal the sick, 
God goes as far as to share that authority with you and me by releasing the Holy Spirit who might now live inside of you and I that we can have access to the real power source of heaven. And then five, responding to and receiving God's authority differently. Why? Because his authority is completely different. God's authority is not like that which you and I have experienced. From a mom, a dad, or employer, a coach, somebody else. God's authority is very different. Why? Because God's authority is on the basis of relationship. It's not a matter of just do what I say because I'll get you if you don't. God deals with us on the basis of treating us as sons, not just as servants. But tonight I want to continue on this theme because I believe that the real essence of the authority of Jesus we find, we're going to find in this passage. Turn over, if you would, to Mark, the second chapter. Mark chapter 2. And we're going to look at a lot of Scripture tonight. So whether or not you're using an electronic device or using a paper Bible, then just get ready because we're going to look at a lot of Scripture. Mark chapter 2, verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people had heard that he come, so many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. And some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. And since they could not get him to get, get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, well, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I'll tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Lord, in these few minutes tonight, help us understand the real nature of divine authority. It's locked up in this passage. Minister something to us, be it for the first time or for the hundredth time. But make it real to us in this moment by your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Of all the power that we associate and seek from Jesus, it's his power to deal with the sin problem that uniquely distinguishes him from all other gods, all other religions, and all other requisite sacrifices and systems that go with these other religions. How does the God 
of your religion deal with the sin issue. And every religion has their own set of rules and sacrifices for how sin is dealt with. But it begs some questions that we have to ask and answer before we ever get to that. And here are the four questions we'll look at briefly. One, is sin sin? If that's true, then proceed to number two. Who has the right to judge sin? Does God? If he does, number three, would a loving God punish sin or demand a price for it? If he does, number four, what penalty and price and who pays it? Now, these seem like very, very simple questions, but in reality, they're very complex. Who decides, for instance, what is sin? Who makes a determination? Oh, we've got some, we, 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 we've got quite a bit in the Bible that unpacks it for us. We've got Ten Commandments. We've got different things that are, we, we, we find in, in the New Testament, things that Jesus told us. We know that these things are sin. And yet, who decides what's sin? It's a moving target many times based on, one, what is culturally acceptable. Because what becomes culturally acceptable at some point will become, number two, culturally normative. And then what becomes culturally normative at some point will become culturally expected. And finally, it will become mandated and legislated. Now, just think about just a few modern examples of that, which I don't even want to point out in the context of this message. I don't have time. But this is the progression, that what's culturally accepted will become culturally normative, will become culturally expected, and finally, it will become mandated and legislated accordingly. And we've seen that, things that you and I, that we don't even have to question whether or not it's sin, has now become, not just in this nation, but in, in the nations, many times gets protected by law. Is sin, sin? And in the church, it's a question that rages today. An old heresy that's cropped back up that says, in essence, you cannot sin. At least not your real self or your spiritual man can't sin because sin your flesh has been reckoned with once it's salvation, quote unquote, and all sin has already been atoned for. In other words, you're good. It's okay. Because, you know, that's just, you know, this this dichotomy between who you are, the spirit man, the real Jim, and this flesh Jim over here. And so I don't, you know, we, we, we just won't bother with him. The real Jim is good. He's good. And this is, this is a, 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 an old heresy that's making quite a resurgence in the church right now. And beyond just that heresy, it's the idea that there really is no sin per se. There's just better or worse choices, but there's no moral consequence. Amen. 
But here's the problem. If you are sin-free, then that would mean that you are righteous. And if you're unrighteous, if you're righteous, then you are no longer in need of forgiveness. I mean, just follow, just follow it all the way through. I mean, really, if, if I don't have to deal with the issue of sin anymore, then I'm good. I'm righteous. And therefore, I don't need a righteousness from Christ because I've got my own because of how sin has been defined. You see how we have to start this thing and we have to begin to logically work through it? Is sin, sin? I mean, I can tell you so many times as pastors, how someone will come to us and say, is it sin to do X, Y, and Z? Show me in the Bible where it's a sin to get high. Show me in the Bible where this physical line with this man or this woman, if it's not real, what? I did not have relations with that woman. You see the problem? And then somebody wants to help us. Somebody wants to come to us and want us to draw the line and give them the set of rules and define what sin is. And then if they like what they're doing quite a bit, then they'll just argue with you and say, no, it's good for me. Well, then why'd you ask? (laughs) There's only one problem with this. It's not biblical. Romans, the third chapter. We'll be digging around in Romans for a moment tonight. Chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. What shall we conclude? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jew and Gentile alike are all under sin. And it's just written, there is no one righteous, not even one. And there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit, the the poison of vipers is on their lips, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The law becomes the guardrails that points us and says, these, these are the parameters. This is is what God sets forth and defines anything that falls short of that As sin, as a matter of fact, that is one of the definitions of sin is missing the mark or missing the target. Romans 3.23, it goes on a few verses later. For all have sinned, there it is, all, there's that word again, all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. So can can we all agree here for the sake of moving this message along that sin is a very real thing? That you are not, you are not the, the definer of what sin is. God is the one who's the ultimate arbiter of what he determines is that falling short. Can we, are we all good with that? God has given us this horrible thing called a conscience. And the Holy Spirit is there poking that conscience, telling us, put the third donut down. 
He's there poking that conscience. You don't need to be watching this. You really don't need a fourth law and order right now. Turn it off. Philippians 3, 9, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. So then if we've established that there is sin, that God is the, uh, God, God is the definer of what sin is, then who has the right to judge? Does God have the right to judge sin? How many times have you heard that? You can't judge me. Who, you ain't a judge of me. I got bad news for you. God is a judge of you. But you see, until you understand the concept of righteousness, until you understand the concept of who God is, then there's no way in the world that you can relate to God and the judgment of God and God as judge. You can't have both things. You have to have righteousness. There has to be a standard first. And understanding that as God has made that standard, then God can judge that standard or anything that falls short of it. And it depends on what you understand about the holiness and righteousness of God. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. There is no one holy like the Lord. No one beside you, no rock like God. And don't keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows. Who gives Jesus the right to judge? The Father. Jesus didn't just set himself up in that place. The Father put him in that place. The one that made you. Acts chapter 10, verses 42 through 43. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. It does not get any clearer than that. 2 Timothy 4, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead. Jesus then is that judge. So then, would a loving God really punish sin and or demand a price for sin? And you may be thinking, Pastor Jim, we got all this. I can't take that for granted. This is, what, this is the gospel. And there are like, there's so many variations of the gospel that's being preached in the church, not this church, but the church capital C today, that what we're talking about right here in terms of Jesus' role as judge, Jesus' role as what he does with the sin problem and the sin issue, this is the heart. This is what makes the gospel work right here. Jesus' theology was a crisis theology. The Greek word for crisis means judgment. And the crisis that Jesus preached was a crisis of an impending judgment on the world. Sounds, ooh, this is really heavy duty. It's very real. That at some point, God is going to pour out his wrath against all ungodliness, against all unrighteousness, 
against everything that has not been redeemed and atoned for by the blood of Christ. Waiting for the wrath of God to come fall on it. Let me just tell you, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We don't talk much about this because we talk more about how we access the blessings of God and the love of God. And I mean, I mean, this is this is the this is what we like. No. But we don't talk much about the righteous anger of God, the wrath of God. You know, I've been a believer for over 40 years, and I have never, ever heard a sermon on hell. Four decades. And I've heard one or two sermons. But I've never heard a sermon on hell, ever. Interesting. And the only hope for escape from this outpouring of wrath is to be covered by the blood. It's the only escape. When we talk about salvation biblically, we've got to be careful to understand that from which we're ultimately saved. Paul, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Matthew 5.22 that you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause, shall be in danger of judgment. Matthew 12, 36, I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. Ultimately, Jesus came to save us from what? The wrath of God. So then, what's the going rate for sin today? What does sin cost? Who can afford it? What is the going rate for murder? What is the going rate for adultery? And different religious systems, if you go back into the Old Testament, you did this and you, you, you would bring this or you'd bring this sacrifice and so it was a very cause and effect. But now today, what, what, is, it, what, what is the price? Can you pay for it through your own righteousness or your own works or maybe a double tithe one month? That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 1 John chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does, here's a provision. We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but the sins of the world. Another translation, the ESV, other translations, use the word propitiation for the word atoning. When I was a junior in high school, it was a unique move of God during that times. Early, early mid-70s. It was my junior year, I'll never forget it, and a whole bunch of folk got saved. Didn't quite understand what was going on. Except I happened to be one of the knuckleheads that a bunch of teenage girls targeted for salvation. 
Didn't know it until years later. I was one. Said, God, you're going to get him. And something prompted me. I was a good Episcopal boy, raised in the Episcopal church. A heathen. But I knew when to kneel and stand. And I mean, I had, you know, I had all the, had all the stuff down. But in a moment of something going on on the inside, I sat down with my local priest. And I said, you know, I know, I'm, I know something's not right. I know my life is not what it should be. And I know that there's something deeper in God that I'm missing. I walked into his office. Talk about low-hanging fruit. And this is what he told me. He said, I have the power to absolve sins. Now, I didn't know much about the Bible. But I knew enough about God and I knew enough about man that that didn't sound quite right to me. And it took me two more years to shake that off until God had an encounter with me in a dorm room in 1976. I have the power to absolve sins. Do you really? Hmm. Interesting. He is the propitiation for sin. And there are two words that one has to understand in this process. The one is expiation. The second is propitiation. Expiation literally means to make pious and implies the removing or cleansing of sin. In other words, ex, something coming off. And the, the, the prefix ex means out of or taken from. But by contrast, the word propitiation has to do with something for. It brings about a change in God's attitude. So if you wish another way of saying it, one propitiation as a person, one propitiates a person, one expiates a problem. And in this problem of, of this issue of salvation, there are two things that are happening here. In expiation, God is taking the sin away. But just being free from sin does not come and restore the relationship. It's in propitiation that now we are made propitious now in his eyes and that favor and fellowship gets restored. See, this is, this is the power of that word. And quite frankly, ladies and gentlemen, that is the definition of salvation. It is those two concepts coming together of not just now, I don't have this sin funk on me anymore, but now God has, I'm now in right relationship with him. I'm not afraid of him. I can approach the throne with confidence. This is the definition of salvation. And ladies and gentlemen, let me just say to you, scripture, that word salvation is a problematic word. Everybody's got a definition of what it is. It's a raised hand at the end of a service, and that's salvation. And yet, Scripture says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That word sozo is a big word in Scripture. How many of you know that this process of expiation and propitiation, it's not just a one-time thing, but we are back and forth into it as we come back to the cross, back to the cross, reapplying the blood to those same areas many times. 
And you wonder, at what point will I get mature enough or holy enough or righteous enough or sanctified enough that I'm not going to need this anymore when you stop breathing? Period. That's when the process stops. And I've said this so many different times, but maturity is not whether or not we get to the cross. Maturity is how quickly we get there. It's a unique thing about our God is that only Jesus can do this. Peter's amazing sermon after Pentecost Let all Israel be assured that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do? I mean, what is the penalty for killing God? I mean, even if you're innocent, even if you accidentally hit somebody with your automobile, you didn't mean to do it. But what is the penalty for crucifying God? Imagine that moment when revelation comes to you and you realize, how do I get out of this? There's there's nowhere to go. There's no human court. There's nothing I can do. Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It's the right question, what can we do? Repent, receive. See, sheep cannot bear the burden of guilt. Sheep are not burden-carrying beasts. They freak out. They're not intended. They're not built for it. Their little brains are not wired to carry the burden, any burden. And you and I, sheep, we cannot carry the burden of our own guilt. I read this last week and I... Without the gospel, we're left to simply wanting to kill ourselves. See, other religions require you to deal with the issue of sin. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to fix this? But it's not only forgiveness, but it's the restoration of favor, fellowship that constitutes this great salvation. And this, ladies and gentlemen, this is the real power of the gospel. Jesus, bring me some money. Jesus, bring me some healing. By his stripes, we're healed. The cattle on a thousand. I mean, we've got so many aspects that we emphasize today. But this needs to be the very core of what we believe about the real authority of Jesus. Is it easier to say, pick up your mat and walk, or that the Son of Man has authority and power to forgive sins on the planet? You know, doctors can heal. I mean, they they can fix your body. I mean, you could win the Virginia lottery. It's possible. It's unlikely, but it's possible. Pastor Sean was like, no, it's not. But I mean, there are natural things that one can, that, that, that we can come into a lot of these things. But you know what? There is no human agency that can forgive sins. Doesn't exist. Oh, they can make us feel better. Oh, it's okay. But in terms of 
wiping the slate clean? Can't be done. Only the divine can do that. John 15, you are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Wow. And Jesus alone, Christ's work was the act of the placation of God's wrath. A guarantee of our favorable place with God and our placement. Ephesians talks about us being seated with him in heavenly places. It says, but because of his great love, Ephesians 2. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you have been saved. And then God raises us up with Christ and seats us with him in heavenly places. Today is Ash Wednesday. Now, those of you that maybe don't come out of a church tradition You have no idea what this is. Well, let me unpack it for you for a moment. March 1st, Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of the season of Lent. Lent is a 40-day period leading up to Easter, not counting Sundays. And it's intended to be a reflection of Jesus' 40 days when he was in the wilderness, when he was fasting, when he was being tempted by the devil. And observing Lent, Christians, we remember in this moment the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I want us to take communion together tonight. It's called Ash Wednesday, by the way, in that in certain denominational traditions, they they take ashes and they mark the forehead. Those ashes having been the palms of of the year before, that were burned and the ashes from those palms were put on the forehead. We don't have ashes here tonight. But what we do have are communion elements. And if you would, if you have them, take them right now. If you don't, the ushers would be happy to bring them to you. If you need them, just raise your hand. Ushers are coming down. And I want to encourage us as we as we celebrate Ash Wednesday and we come into the season of Lent, historically Lent is marked by some type of extended, if you wish, consecration, fast. And I'm not encouraging you not to eat for the next 40 days. You will probably die. But something that is near and dear to you that consumes your attention, your affection. It's not unlike the five-day fast we did in January, but it's an extended period of time where we can really reflect on this gospel. Leading all the way up to Easter. Christmas is not our holiday, ladies and gentlemen. Easter is our celebration. Easter is what it's about for us. Yes, Jesus being born, the miracle of that, it's all great. But let me just tell you, it was only until he came out of that tomb and he defeated the grave and death that there was victory that was made known. Easter is our moment. And what Lent does, it provides us, if you wish, 
a six-week runway that we can really not just kind of come up to that holy week and say, oh, this is so special. No, no, no. 40 days where we really can ponder, look into the miracle and the mystery of this gospel, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What this blood really does that no religion, no small G God, no amount of desire or effort on your part could ever get you there. Hebrews, the ninth chapter. We'll read this as we prepare our hearts for communion. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 11. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That's to say, not a part of this creation. And he didn't enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. And the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean, sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then? With the blood of Christ, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. And for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who were called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Take your wafer. How much more? You know, having been raised in the historical church, one thing that we did right, <laughs> we did the table right. There was honor, there was reverence, there was mystery. And yes, there was even a little bit of fear. Scripture says, examine yourselves. Examine yourselves so you don't take this in an unworthy manner. Before we take this wafer representing the broken body of Christ tonight, I want you to ask the Holy Spirit to examine you. I mean, take a good look. Attics, closets, crawl spaces, the hidden spaces, the dark spaces, the stuff you've gotten away with in the natural. Lord, we thank you that we can come to you tonight with no shame. Because not only did you, did you bear our sins, our iniquities, you broke those curses. But God, you endured the shame of the cross. That even the shame that sin brings, you bore that on our behalf as well. That we don't have to be ashamed anymore. 
Thank you. Lord, thank you for your broken body. We barely even know what to thank you for because most of us haven't had a real glimpse of heaven nor a real glimpse of what we've been saved from going in the other direction. But to the extent that we can say thank you tonight, we say thank you. Thank you for your broken body. Receive the bread. He took the cup. He said, this is my blood shed for you. It's the cup of a new covenant. Drink this thinking of me. Pastor Danelle, join me up here. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself in blemish to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God?